I should just offer a warning here before we get started. The documentary film we're going to talk about today has some really disturbing stories, references to suicide and infanticide and sexual abuse. Do you remember in 2021 when the news broke about the discovery of dozens of unmarked graves at an Indian residential school in British Columbia, Canada? Well, the story triggered a wave of stories about these places and multiple claims of sexual and physical abuse of Native children. The investigative journalist and filmmaker Emily Cassie called her friend Julian Brave Noisecat. She said she wanted to make a film. Did he want to help? Julian was reluctant. He says his family had a painful connection to those schools, and they didn't talk about any of it. He told her he'd think about it, and Emily kept working. This was really the first time I ever turned my lens on my own country. I've reported in Afghanistan and Syria and Turkey and Rwanda, but never focused on the horrors that Canada's foundational history is based upon you know, the genocide of its indigenous peoples. And that same day that I messaged Julian, while I was waiting to hear from him, I went looking for a nation that said they were going to do a search. And I was so lucky to happen upon an article about the Williams Lake First Nation. I got in touch with Chief Willie Sellers and wrote him a letter. And he got back to me that day and said, the creator has always had great timing. Just yesterday, our council was saying we need someone to document this search. And by the time Julian got back to me, I had started to book flights and plans to go to St. Joseph's Mission. So I said to Jules, hey, I would love for you to work on this story with me. When Emily told me which school she had chosen to follow an investigation at, there was a long pause in the phone call. And then I said, Wow, that's really crazy. Did you know that's the school where my family was sent and where my father was born? Out of 139 schools across Canada, Emily happened to choose to follow an investigation at the one school that my family attended and where my dad's life began. It's a really you know, what are the odds kind of a story. And it's the kind of thing that makes you think that there might be greater forces at work here. You know, I think that one of the really different things about the making of this documentary and the intentions that we tried to put into the filmmaking and the edit was this feeling that there was actually greater forces at work in this story and driving us towards this story, guiding us throughout it. You know, we never make this explicit in the documentary, but that is a feeling that we would like audiences to come away from. I came into the film, you know, not being a particularly spiritual person. And there were just so many things that happened along the way that just just felt otherworldly that felt like, you know, the world had broken open. And one of those moments very early on was when Charlene, one of the protagonists of the film, an activist and investigator who's been working on this for 35 years, texted me and said, please meet me at the barn with Julian and bring your camera. 
Oh, it's not even stable, eh? And in that moment, in that scene in the film, she brings Julie into these barns where the children who used to hide from the priests who abused them, who were lashed there, who were abused there, would write their names on the wall and mark the days until home time. 49 GT. This barn feels haunted in so many ways. And she calls on him to tell this story. Our elders are now looking to you. And in that moment, it just felt like the whole world broke open. There was a power within Julian and within the room and the energy in there that just, we knew that we had come upon something or maybe we were brought towards something special. And it was just another moment of energy just picking up and swirling and feeling like we were dealing with something greater than ourselves. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Today in the program, we're talking about Emily and Julian's documentary. It's called Sugar Cane. It premiered at this year's Sundance Film Festival. And it's not just about the investigation of this school, the stories of abuse and even infanticide. It's more about the aftermath on the indigenous community around the Sugar Cane Indian Reserve. In that scene in the barn we were talking about a moment ago, Charlene says this prayer. Great-grandfather, creator of all good things, I pray to you and I thank you for, for bringing Julian home to us. She thanks the great-grandfather, the great spirit for, as she puts it, bringing Julian home. And that's where we started the conversation. My relationship to this community, which we gesture at in the film, but is not a huge focal point, is the fact that I, I come from this community, but I actually did not grow up there. Yeah. So my father, Ed, who is one of the main characters and subjects of the film, grew up in a community called Canham Lake, which is not far south of Williams Lake. It's part of the broader sort of Sequetmuch Nation's um, homelands, and it's one of the reserves that's nearby to Sugarcane. And he had a very hard upbringing, as is sort of discussed to a limited extent in the film. There's a lot more stories, obviously, mm-hmm. than, than get into this, this movie. And so when he was old enough, when he was a young adult, he moved away uh, to the big city of Vancouver, went to community college, um, went on to art school, and then moved himself all the way across the country to New York on um, this treaty that we have uh, rights under as First Nations citizens called the Jay Treaty, which allows uh, status Indians in Canada to live in the United States. So in New York, where my dad was working as a master printmaker, he met my mom, who's an Irish Jewish New Yorker. And so I was actually born in the United States away from my community, although I I grew up uh, being taken back, especially by my mom, actually, as is also gestured at in the film. Mm. Um, and so part of the the theme in the film is about um, homecoming and, and mm. reconnecting. Mm. For me, you know, I've, I've been very lucky to have and maintain that connection throughout my life. Um, but my father, uh, you know, because of his traumatic upbringing and, and, and his uh, association of that with his family and with our res, he actually goes back very, very infrequently. Yeah. And so the, another part of the sort of narrative of the film is, is my dad's homecoming and right. reconnection with his mm. family and his past. But Charlene says something else to you there in the barn. She says in this really powerful emotional moment, she says, our elders are looking to you. Our elders are now looking to you <sighs> to 
listen to her stories. Give voice to all of our children that never made it from here. What kind of responsibility, I guess, did you feel? Do you feel? It seems like in some ways you, you weren't expecting to go there and tell this story and be part of this story and try to get your family to talk about things they never have wanted to. So what's the sense of responsibility that you start to feel when you hear her say something like that to you? You know, Charlene is an incredible activist. She's also a relative of mine through the Archie family. Um, She's essentially a cousin of my dad, a cousin of mine. Um, Although I call her auntie because of the the, um, elder relationship. Mm. Uh, She's been working on the residential school issue specifically at St. Joseph's Mission and also more broadly across the province and and country for over 34 years. She has really been someone who's been talking about this history and trying to bring out the truth and seeking justice long before um, the government, the church, and even many of our own family members were ready to go there. And so in that scene, you know, she is um, in a way bringing me into um, that legacy of activism and speaking. And, um, you know, I think that that was a very uh, conscious and deliberate effort on her part, because at that moment, you know, I had a lot of hesitations um, going there with my own story in a new medium that I had never worked in before. This is my first film. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think that her and other participants, um, bravery and, and courage and pulling me in, and, and guiding me um, was a really, really essential part of the making this documentary and also the, the work that we hope it does, you know, beyond mm. out in the world. Emily, I want to ask you about your own connection to, I guess, to telling this story. I mean, you, you, you've said you felt, uh, this is the way you put it, gut pulled to tell it. S- say what you mean by that, because you have your own, I guess, sort of cultural connection or understanding of genocide. Yeah, um, I'm Jewish and I grew up with, you know, a lot of um, education and and talk um, and extended familial memories of of the Holocaust. And um, I felt from a very young age that I wanted to understand human suffering in the world and help um, deter it or help bring light to it. Um, I made my first documentary when I was 14 um, on gay teens in religious high schools. Uh, that was the most immediate justice I had seen in my life. And um, I kept going on that on that thread. I spent my summers between my years at college um, in Rwanda, um, looking at reconciliation in post-genocide Rwanda. Um, and in my career since, I've continued to cover, you know, um, these human rights abuses, mass atrocities, genocide around the world. And I think that you know, um, having a history um, and an understanding of being part of a people who have been persecuted and, and been, um, you know, nearly annihilated um, informed my interest in, in making sure that 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 wasn't going to happen again. Of course, it has many times over, but playing a small part in, in helping bring truth to that. Um, and I had never done anything on Canada and I knew some of this history, but not enough of it. It was not taught in schools. My 
first year of kindergarten was the last year of residential schools in 1997. Huh. Not once were we taught about the schools in my wow. entire Canadian education. Wow. So when I heard about the unmarked graves, I just felt like I could bring my skill set to this. Um, and, uh, you know, this is work I've been doing for my entire career. Uh, it's personal to me. It's important journalistically. Um, and I knew that the best way to do it was with Julian. Well, I, th- I think it's interesting the film that you created, you talk about sort of the, the journalistic part to it. But the style, Julian, you've described this as an epic cinematic portrait of your people. So wh- where did you begin in terms of the way you wanted this to look, the kind of style? And how did you sort of map out how you're going to do this? Because you don't just – sit people down and interview them. There isn't an historian sort of laying out a backstory. It's a much more organic, you know, kind of storytelling technique. It's like it's like a journey. It's like this journey of discovery in some way. Would you, would you both just talk about the kind of style that you settled on, how you discussed it, how you wanted to – how you wanted this thing to look? Absolutely. So um, I knew that I, I, I've shot everything that I've worked on, but I knew that I wanted this to be at a much like a very high cinematic level because, you know, we felt that for people to really understand um, the story, they needed to feel close. They needed to feel personal. They needed to be transported to another world. It needed to feel more like fiction than documentary um, visually. And so we brought on our uh, DP, Christopher Lamarca, and he and I shot two camera for most of the film. Um, and the vision for it was something that was incredibly intimate where the landscapes were just as affecting and, and evocative as the landscapes of, of people's faces and, and the horrors that they experienced written across their face. Um, we felt that the best way to tell this story was to live it and to follow it um, in in real time because this is a place where the past is present. And we wanted people to feel that. We wanted them to ride along and get to know these people as individuals, not feel at an arm's length from them because it's an issue film or something like that, but that they were experiencing a re- real piece of cinema, of art, in which they could feel like they got to know our protagonists, um, where there was a softness and tenderness and patience to the camera work, uh, which was almost entirely handheld the entire time. Yeah, I think that we also just wanted to do justice to truths that rarely are seen mm-hmm. in uh, in the language of of, of film and cinema. Um, you know, firstly, these are people who are who are overlooked, but who are just towering characters. You know, Charlene is a hero in every sense of that word. Um, My dad has a presence and a charisma that just fills up a room and you can't look at his face and not just think, wow, that is a man who must have, you know, endless stories. And, you know, Chief Rick Gilbert in his own quiet, dignified, and also actually really funny way is just an incredibly compelling character who, you know, might remind viewers of their own grandfathers. Mm -hmm. And that is something that we that is rarely seen in film, and something that we wanted to um, honor and do justice. And you know, more broadly, the, the 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 statement that is being made through this very beautiful film that Emily and Chris shot, and that Nathan and Maya edited, and that we all worked so hard on together in the field and in the edit to make into as good and beautiful a film as we possibly could 
is that, you know, the indigenous way of life, the very thing that these schools were designed to destroy, to annihilate, to wipe off the face of the earth is a beautiful and cinematic way of life and needs to be seen that way and needs to endure. That's Julian Brave Noisecat. He co-directed the film Sugarcane along with Emily Cassie. There's one more screening of the film at Sundance tomorrow morning in Park City. We'll put a link to the festival on our website, radiowest.org. We'll take a break. Come back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West. One of the uh, critical storylines of the film, of course, is your father, Ed, um, Archie Noisecat, uh, and uh, his sort of reluctance to talk about or confront the story. Um, what does your father – what is he afraid of? He says, he says to you as you sort of are pushing him to, to, to sort of say something about it. He says it's pretty secretive stuff. When you're, as he says, born in a mission school and thrown away. Well, for something that important to our literal existence, I think I want to know the whole story. We don't have the whole story because I don't know it. Well, I think your mom would be the only person who knows it, it, it's kind of like it just keeps on damaging, just just keeps on going. So what is he afraid of? And maybe I could broaden it to say, what has your family been afraid of? It's, I guess there's shame. There's also something else going on. Like what, what is it that has kept your family quiet for so many years? There was this familiar refrain after the discovery of – so many unmarked graves, potential unmarked graves at Indian residential schools across Canada, uh, which was that, you know, Native people have known and been talking about this for so long. And that may be true for some families in some communities, um, but the ones that I'm familiar with and most familiar with, including my own family, that was not the case. Um, This was a history and an experience that was so painful, so traumatizing that we buried it deepest in the, in our, the deepest recesses of our memories and rarely, if ever, talked about it. My grandmother only shares one or two stories about her experiences at the residential schools. Uh, one of them is essentially about how her parents tried to hide her in a cabin so that she wouldn't have to go. And the other is about how the little girls at the school would call the priests and nuns, the black bear, the kinkeknum in our language, they'd say shtekwa kinkeknum um, when, the, when the nuns and priests were coming because the, the nuns and priests were predators. And, you know, that history is something that we need to talk about, I think. And um, part of what we really wanted to hold space for and, and give the right pacing for and um, really, you know, draw out in this film are the parts of... Um, you know, this history that are not spoken of even by the people who experienced them. Um, Because I think that that's, you know, not only true of this history, but I think true of so many families and so many family traumas. You know, I think you don't need to be indigenous to relate to 
a kind of family situation where, you know, there is some painful part of your past or something that happened that, you know, your grandmother, your grandfather, your aunt, your uncle, maybe your own parents, you know, can't put words to or aren't or aren't comfortable speaking about. And, um, you know, that I think is a universal story, as well as, you know, in this case, a particular one about this very, very troubling history. You say in that moment to your father, you say this, you say for something that is so critical to our existence, I want to know the whole story. What do you mean so critical to our existence that the the telling of the story, that the understanding of the story is essential to your existence as a people? Yeah, you know, for me, they're in in Salish uh, narrative tradition, we divide our stories into uh, what are called lachayim and shpatek. And lachayim is um, a, a traditional narrative, usually about yourself or about your lineage, hmm. that tells people how, where you come from, who you are, and how you are related. And so, in a sense, it is sort of a chronicling of who your genealogy is and what the most important stories are from your genealogy and what those tell your family and the broader world about who you are and the significance of, of you and your position and place in your family and community. And the, the, the fact, the reality that my father, you know, is the only known survivor of this systematic infanticide, you know, is a, is a fundamental and very powerful story about who we are and where we come from. And it's also a story that, you know, requires reconciling within our own family to be, you know, to, to, to be okay, you know, and, and forgiveness, a lot of forgiveness. Um, and so my feeling, you know, as someone who practices the art of narrative, but also just as a human being and as a, as a native person was that, you know, if that is a story that is in your literal bloodline, that is part of how your father survived and therefore how you are able to exist at all, you, you should know that story um, as, hard as, it, as hard as it may be to get at it and to get to the truth. Emily, tell us about Rick Gilbert, who he is, and I guess I'll put it this way, and what it is that he wants. Rick... Uh, is one of the most extraordinary people um, that I've ever met in my life. Um, it was our first. It was it was my first week in Williams Lake, and Julian hadn't arrived quite yet. And it was the the first meeting with Chief and Council where I met Rick, and I had dinner with him afterwards. Mm. And he started telling me stories um, about his time at the residential school, and I just knew I could feel how special he was. Um, Rick is a former chief of Williams Lake. Um, he attended St. Joseph's Mission. He's a survivor and he's also um, a practicing Catholic. Um, and he is also struggling with an with a secret that he's held on to his whole, whole life. And he's trying to figure out who he is um, and, and what his identity is and where he belongs um, and dealing with deep shame from, from the traumas that he endured. Um, and trying to figure out if there is truth in this religion that his elders held so close, that his wife Anna holds so close, that um, has meaning to him. So much meaning, in fact, that he and his wife are the caretakers of the church on the reservation. They're the caretakers of the Catholic church on the grounds of the mission where he goes and mows the lawn with his wife and cuts the grass on the grounds of the school that that terrorized him 
Um, and he's still taking care of this Catholic cemetery where uh, oblate priests are buried. Mm. Um, it's a really extraordinary tension that we were so drawn to. Um, and following Rick's journey and that tension and his interiority was the greatest gift because he is, uh, like Charlene, a real hero. Um, and this film is his legacy. Um, and, um, you know, he has since passed away. He passed away during the edit, uh, which was extremely difficult. Yeah. Um, but we are so proud to be a part of him being able to release this story, release his pain and, and speak his truth in such a powerful way. Um, we went all the way to the Vatican mm -hmm. with him. And he is part of a delegation to uh, hear the apology for Pope Francis and you experience it through his perspective and, and kind of the disappointments and the grappling he's having with this place that's supposed to represent, you know, his faith and, and other pieces of him. Well, let me, I want to ask about a particular moment in the, there at the Vatican. And I won't give anything away. There's a really crucial moment that is, um, honestly, almost it would not be right to talk about without the context of seeing the film. So I'll, I'll leave that to people to, to, to see because it's powerful. But he's having this conversation with a priest, this upper-level, high-ranking priest. Um, and he, he talks about, he, you know, he says that the, the priests, he's telling him about his experience, how the priests at the school, the principals, you know, were considered next to God, as he said, and the children were next to savages. Um, and he talks to them about the, the abuse and I wanted to ask about the reaction of the priest. It's – I think it's hard for – it will be hard for people to feel any kind of connection, frankly, with, with, with a priest at this moment. He's sort of bearing his soul. He's talking about the importance of um, somebody saying sorry. <laughs> We just talk about this moment. I found it again. We don't need to give anything away here, but just the the the, the priest is talking about this sickness that has grown into the church. He said that the church also needs to be healed. He he talked about this as even being a mutual kind of experience. Which you know, I don't know. What do you what do you will you say something about this this moment with Rick and this priest there in the Vatican? It was a really intense moment. We didn't know what Rick was going to share with the priest that day. Um, and we were pretty blown away at, at the courage he had to both share his truth, but then also tell him that his reaction, his explanation was not enough. Rick actually says, corrects the priest and says, you know, in the Bible, um, saying sorry isn't enough. They, they say you have to take action. One of the parts of the Bible states that being sorry for something is just the first step. You have to work it out. Take action and, and mm -hmm. we've heard apologies, but still nothing has happened mm -hmm. really. Rick kind of dismisses the the kind of flat explanations that the priest shares. And this priest was, you know, clearly feeling for Rick and, and having compassion for his story and at the same time explaining away yeah. why the Catholic Church perpetrated all this abuse. And and at the end of it, Rick says, well, I'm, I'm counting on you. Um, and, and obviously that conversation had been much longer. We cut it down and, and, and Rick was really urging him for the Catholic Church to move beyond an apology. Mm. 
um, which, you know, hasn't really happened. There hasn't been significant, um, you know, reparations or, or things like that from the Catholic church. And so, um, he says, I'm putting all my faith in you. And, and, um, uh, the oblate priest, um, Father Logan says, in, in God alone. And Rick is just, you can just tell in that moment that he's, he, he doesn't accept that. It's not enough. Um, and, and there's, there's an emptiness there. And we felt that was really important for people to see and see it in Rick's face, how wholly unsatisfying those explanations and answers were. And I, you know, I think this, this guy was, was, was really feeling for Rick, but I, I do think that that is the kind of, the, the line of the Catholic church of we're very sorry, we need your forgiveness. Um, and I don't think that that that's acceptable or enough for Rick or, or for many others. Running alongside uh, these, you know, these moments of revelation and pain, there of course is this investigation that's playing out. Will, will you talk a little bit about what, um, what is revealed in, in the film, it seems like the thing that really comes out is how systemic this was, how coordinated it was. And when, when you see, for example, um, this board uh, that has been, um, you know, uh, put together, Charlene has put together along with one of the other investigators, um, Whitney Sperling, Sperling um, you you see the um, the causes of death from these children who had either run away, so they died of exposure. Some died of drowning. Some died in a suicide pact. I mean, you're seeing this litany, this list here on this board. Some died of pneumonia. Some they died. It was unknown. And then you see these strings that. Whitney and Charlene have connected to the principles, these priests. Um, and Father Shea, Father Morris, Father McGrath, Father Collins. Will you talk a little bit about this, what, you, what was revealed in this investigation, the idea that this, is a, this was coordinated, this was systemic? So the climax of sugarcane um, culminates in sort of parallel uh, reveals, some about our characters that we will leave as reveals for people to watch when they hopefully view the film. Um, but then there is also an investigative angle to the film that is that is actually breaking new journalistic ground. Uh, and that is a discovery of uh, what appears to be systematic infanticide at St. Joseph's mm -hmm. Mission a system wherein uh, women were being abused by priests, were sometimes um, becoming pregnant with the children of those priests, or where unwed women uh, were alongside those women who were being abused by priests, were being forced to have adoptions, were being forced to adopt out their babies. Uh, or in some instances, there are eyewitness accounts of this, as well as police records corroborating them, as well as um, living uh, evidence of babies being cast into the incinerator to be burned alive. Um, there has been reporting about uh, sexual abuse, physical abuse, and death at Indian residential schools in Canada. Um, but there is this is as as far as we know a, 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 the first um, evidence of a system of infanticide of this kind. The investigation um, also uncovered 
um, you know, the Catholic Church's knowledge of and involvement of every step of that process. Yeah. The Catholic AIDS Society, uh, which dealt with the adoptions, was also run by the Catholic Church. The unwed mother's home that they sent these little mm-hmm. girls to mm-hmm. to have their babies, also run by the Catholic Church. Um, and of course, um, the stories within the film describe nuns throwing a baby into the incinerator. Yeah. Um, and 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 those stories have been told over and over again. And of course, we also have a witness in the film who was asked to bury the ashes of the incinerator, a white boy mm-hmm. from town brought over by the priest to do this and found remains of, of children, bits of bone he speaks to. Um, this is remarkable. Uh, this is a, a systemic infanticide. I mean, it's it's completely shocking. It's murderous. And it was, you know, allowed to continue on by the Catholic Church and the Canadian government and society at large. So we were blown away by these discoveries. And, and we think that everyone should be as well. Emily Cassie, along with Julian Brave Noise Cat, they co-directed the film Sugar Cane. There's one more screening of the film at Sundance. It's tomorrow morning in Park City. We'll put a link to the festival on our website, radiowest.org. We'll take another break. Come back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West. There's a moment in the film where you go and you talk to a man named Larry and you ask him about what he knows of these babies who were, you know, abandoned, left for dead, incinerated. And he he talks about how it's hard to forget and it's hard to forgive. But it's not like, again, throughout the film, it's not like you're just interviewing Larry to find out what happened you're also offering him a kind of healing or at least you offer him a kind of ritual. And, and I wanted to ask about this moment. How can the traditions and the rituals and the practices of your people, how can they help you know, in this healing process? What's happening in this, in this experience with Larry? Yeah, so I, I just want to add one additional thing to the context of what Larry's sharing. Um, so the the systematic nature of infanticide at St. Joseph's Mission is something that was whispered about yeah. in community lore. It was actually something that I had heard of, though I did not actually connect it to, um, you know, other things that are relevant to the film, <laughs> trying not to give away anything here. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so this was something that was known to the community and to some families um, but that was never taken seriously by broader Canadian society other than, you know, in passing in some of these newspaper articles and things like that. Um, so there is a there's an interesting part of the film that is just below the surface about like, you know, truths that are known to some but not to others mm. or ignored. others. Um, and I think that part of, um, you know, that process of of finally acknowledging and seeing and releasing truths that are not being 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 seen and held by other people um you know is is partially uh a, a ceremonial one mm-hmm. frankly mm-hmm. and so when we went to go see larry we were actually brought by um a really amazing uh hereditary chief from the community of Asket or alkali lake um 
named Francis Johnson Jr. Uh, his uh, his hereditary leadership name is Tlechkomenesht. He also goes by Baditz. Um, he brought us fishing. He gave us access to his family. He was an incredible facilitator of this story, and that's actually the only scene that he appears in in the entire film. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can see him uh, helping Larry yeah. um, smoke the the pipe that he brings, uh, and also helping smudge off Larry after Larry shares this incredibly painful, horrific, horrific story mm-hmm. about what he witnessed at Saint Joseph's Mission. And throughout the making of this this documentary. Um, and in many moments that are not seen in the film, uh, you know, sort of smudging and, and, and prayer and sweats and um, fasting and all these different uh, ceremonial rites that we still hold uh, were really, really important parts of um, our, our creative process and, and also how people were processing and dealing with these things in their lives and while we were out in the field. I want to ask about... Uh, um... And we won't give anything away. Again, it's hard to talk about this particular scene without the proper context of the film, so we'll sort of leave it for people to see. But the when you first talk to your father in the film about wanting to know the story, he says, you know, I don't know the story. My mother is the only person who knows. And so there's this effort to see if she will, if she'll talk. And we don't need to even say what she does say or doesn't say. But your father talks about there being this gap in his existence. Um, he wants to find some peace. He wants to understand it. And you don't have to say what she says or what happens. Again, this seems like kind of a moment to save for the people to see. But would you talk about the tracking shot that you decide to use? Um, because all we're doing is hearing. Would you would you talk about that moment? Uh, we knew that this was a very private and 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 careful moment, and the sound of their voices was so visceral and intense. And um, at first, we thought we might go to black and just have it wash over people in that way. And um, you know, our our uh, supervising editor Maya. Hawk made the point that um, you know people might lose the the feeling of the of the visual storytelling of the world um, if we take them out of it. And um, we had uh, I had worked with our, our our drone photographer Nick Ramey on a number of shots in Williams Lake when the light is low. And one night there was this kind of piercing in the sky that, as we panned, grew bigger and bigger, and the light got bigger and bigger. And so. Um, in this scene, you're kind of transitioning from something really painful, from this kind of pinnacle of of hurt and and pain, into something more open and beautiful. And the scene after it is is Julian and his father returning to the mission for a final time to kind of release. Um, and and that shot takes you there. And I think there's also kind of the idea of it being, you know, the river scene comes right before it. Um, and there's this idea of kind of that Julian and I have spoken about, about a river in the sky and time immemorial and images of kind of timelessness and epicness. It also has a kind of wound in the sky feeling that Jules and I had spoken about. Um, and so it just felt like the right shot for that moment and for people to really um, sink into this, unbelievable moment of courage for Ed to be able to finally ask his mother, who he's so afraid to hurt, um, this very hard question. 
Julian, do you mind saying something about the song you sing with your father and to your father? Sure. So um, there's a song that I sing uh, twice in the film. One is after the um, moment where Larry Emile shares uh, what he witnessed at the mission. And the other is at the conclusion of the film. Yeah! That song actually belongs to my great-great-grandfather, who was the chief of a village called Chamakram on the Lillooet River. Um, his Indian name was Nkashusha. His uh, English name was Chief Harry Peters. Um, Nkashusha was uh, training to be a medicine man in the late 1800s um, when, you know, the smallpox came and the gold rushers came and our people uh, died at in, in incredibly high rates and lost immense amounts of land. And so as he was coming of age in this period of time, um, he actually stopped his training to become a medicine man because uh, his people wanted him to be a leader, wanted him to help them respond um, to this apocalyptic um, scenario that, that was, that was uh, falling upon them. And so uh, in Kashusha, um, among the things that he did was he signed uh, the Lillooet Declaration, which was a declaration in the early 1900s um, stating that our land uh, had been wrongfully taken and illegally taken, that we had never signed any treaties, that there was never any legal compensation for the taking of that land, and that we still had rights to it and that we wanted those rights to remain. Um, and so he was one of the signatories of that declaration. And one of the other things that he did um, was he helped build a church in a community called Shkatin on the Lillooet River. Um, it's a really beautiful church. It's actually in the National uh, Historic Registry of Places in Canada. Um, it's, it's entirely hand carpentry done in a Gothic style. It even has a, um, a stained glass window in it. And the intention behind building that church was that in Kashusha and um, the people along the river in that place thought that if they built a beautiful church, the Catholic church would have to send them a priest and that that priest could educate their children in the community. And so their children would not need to be taken away to Indian residential schools. Um, and of course, uh, our land was still taken and our children were still taken away. And so the song that I sing um, comes from uh, that side of my family, the Peters family from Shamakwam and Mount Curry. Uh, and that song is my great-great-grandfather's song and Kashusha's song. Um, and that's the song that I sing uh, to my dad and 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 with Larry um, in the film. So we see um, a, a graphic in the documentary that sort of lays out some of the some of the particulars, some of the facts that you know that hundreds of thousands of children attended these Indian schools across North America. And then there's this. It says there were 139 federally funded schools in Canada. 139, 408 in the U.S. So this story focuses on Canada and their efforts or reluctance to or, you know, deal with, confront this story. What about in the United States? Emily, what can you say or, or Julian, what can you say about how the United States is dealing with this story? 
So, you know, the, the discovery of potential graves sparked a real conversation in Canada and reckoning. And, and this is, is, is a part of that. So that conversation is, is happening and there's more to do, but it is happening here in the U.S. Um, it really has barely started. And the Secretary of the Interior, uh, Deb Holland, who's mm. the first um, Native cabinet secretary uh, did us the great honor of coming to our premiere. And she has started an inquiry into the U.S. boarding schools. You know, there were three times as many schools in the U.S. Um, and this is a, the foundational story of the United States and, mm -hmm. and how it, um, you know, tried to dispose of and, and subjugate the indigenous peoples who were here. Um, so we, our goal with this is for this film to be a catalyst for that conversation here. Cause what happened at the schools in Canada is exactly what happened at the schools in the United States and in other countries in the world, like New Zealand and Australia and, and a mm -hmm. multitude of other countries. Um, so this is not a Canadian story. It's a North American story. It's a global story. The, the in that graphic, it also says indigenous people are still dying from residential schools. Julian, can you talk about this part? What do you mean? I, I, I suppose this is the effects of trauma. In the documentary, um, there is a, a suicide um, that occurs on the first ever National Day of Truth and Reconciliation, a day that is meant to mark the history of the genocide of Indian residential schools. And we were actually filming on that day in 2022 um, when we pulled back onto the res after a big gathering of um, Native people in Williams Lake, particularly from the Sugarcane Reserve. And as we pulled onto the, onto, back onto the Sugarcane Res, uh, actually turning down Mission Road, which also takes you to St. Joseph's Mission, um, we saw uh, an ambulance and we saw um, flashing lights and we were driving in the car of Chief Willie Sellers and he pulled up and he went running out of the car um, because there had just been an attempted suicide uh, in a house right on Mission Road. Um, this was actually a story that we followed in much greater length while we were in the field. And unfortunately, um, it didn't fully fit into the narrative of the film. So we're planning on hopefully making a short out of that material. Um, but, you know, this reality that um, the intergenerational effects of the residential schools, you know, are still still has a death toll. It had a death toll at the schools and that death toll persists to this day is a really essential um point and feeling and, and, and idea that we wanted to convey through the film without literally saying it. Um, and, you know, I, I, I would just add that uh, during the making of this film, I attended um, and was a pallbearer at many funerals uh, on the Canem Lake Indian Reserve and elsewhere. Um, many of them, actually most of them for young people, people under the age of 40 uh, in the documentary. Um, if you're paying attention to the length of my hair, uh, it, it goes from kind of long to, well, it starts kind of short because of where we started, where we decided to use, what material decided to use at the beginning, but there's a point in the documentary when it's quite long and then other points where it's actually quite short. Uh, and that's because I cut my hair um, in mourning for uh, my, my brother, my cousin, uh, Stephen Daniels Jr., who um, died of um, alcoholism uh, at the beginning of of um, our our filming. 
So this is uh, very much part of the legacy of Indian residential schools. Um, and yet, you know, that is not the totality of this story. You know, the next line that we in include in the text yeah. card uh, is and and still uh, living despite them. And it is the living part, the love part um, that ultimately, you know, we wanted to um, show as being greater than uh, the destructive nature of these schools. Julian, Emily, thank you both. Thank, thank you, you so, so much. much for having us. Such a thoughtful interview. Really appreciate it. That's the investigative reporter and filmmaker Emily Cassie. She co-directed the film Sugar Cane, along with the writer and journalist Julian Brave Noisecat. Radio West is a production of KUER. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. You can send us ideas or comments or feedback. You can email us at radiowest at KUER.org. The program is produced by Benjamin Bombard and Tim Slover. Carrie Watson is our executive producer. I'm Doug Fabrizio.